friends. Welcome to another edition of Outside is Overrated. I'm your host, Tom Sidlachik, and today we are diving in deep to one of the most highly anticipated games of the year, the Final Fantasy VII Remake. Joining me today via the internet are Hobbybox Burns and my man, Citizen Brandon. What have you fellows been up to since we recorded the Final Fantasy episode a couple months ago? So I've been doing quite a few things, played a ton of Division Two which uh, right now is a pretty fitting game, though that wasn't the reason why we ended up playing it. It was on sale for like five bucks, so I know a bunch of us bought it. Um, started out playing pretty consistently as a four-person team with our normal Ghost Recon squad. Then, and then uh, I had to drop off to start playing Wind Waker to get ready for the Zelda episode, and like the next night, you guys were at level cap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lance and I went pretty hard and heavy into that game for a while. We were pretty much playing it every night for a good hour to three hours, and Lance, I mean, liked it so much that he had started playing it on the PC so he could play with another friend and was like leveling up both of them at the same time. And then he'd just play for hours on end and just explore and find things. And so then when I would come on to play later, he'd be like, all right, I found this down here and I found this down here. So we're going to go do this and find this for you. And then we'll jump into this other stuff. And it, I don't know. It was a lot of fun. The game's, the game's quite a bit of fun. Uh, the shooting is really good, uh, even though a lot of the enemies are bullet spongy, and I would prefer it be more like Ghost Recon, where one headshot will most likely kill a dude unless he's wearing some huge ass helmet. It's a really fun game. I haven't played it in the last couple weeks, though, so looking forward maybe here over this weekend to jump back into that. Uh, I think we've made it to World Tier 3, which is... There's five world tiers once you get to the end game after you hit the level cap of 30. And so we're getting closer to maxing out the game. And then at that point, we can get the expansion jump to New York to play the side stuff, which is like an ending to the first game and a tie in to the original story in New York City. And so looking forward to getting into that on the complete other note, been playing a lot of Animal Crossing, even though the last two weeks I haven't done anything with that either. But that's the complete opposite game. Very chill. Just sort of relax. Do your things on a daily basis. Wander around. Find new friends. Invite people to come to your island. And collect fruits. Sell stuff. Try to make try to make money. Keep. It's basically the. It's basically the American dream. The game. Because it's all about expanding your house, getting into more debt, paying off your debt. Oh, hey, now that you paid off your debt, I could get you this much bigger room to your house. And it's just going to cost you like three times more. And so you're just in more debt and more debt. Uh, but Yay, America. Still- My group of Mora friends was completely enthralled with your tales from this game. They loved your updates. You'd send pictures from your island. Like they were just eating it up. <laughs> especially especially rogue hippo i think he's been having uh he's been having some uh withdrawals recently so i gotta get back on that and send him that the only other thing i've been doing uh is we've been playing since we have the stay-at-home order lockdown everything like that we moved our weekly gloomhaven session onto tabletop simulator so we're playing that online now which is it's a, it's a little convoluted to figure out exactly how everything works within there, but once you do, it actually works extremely well, and it's been pretty good for us to still be able to get together weekly. We're playing through 
the campaign that he's running right now because the sequel to Gloomhaven Frosthaven's on Kickstarter. So he's running a community campaign that kind of evolves through it. People can vote on what the next scenario is going to be off a decision once you finish the current scenario. So we have just finished the third scenario of that, and he's releasing the fourth scenario next week. So that's been pretty fun. Uh, we're playing out some of the new classes, except for me, I'm playing as the Tinkerer, which I'm actually really enjoying. And so, yeah, that's mostly what I've been doing other than the Star Wars tabletop RPG, working on getting a group together for that, and have been learning how that system works. And but wanna, that's uh, broad strokes of what I've been playing. If you want to learn more about the Star Wars tabletop system, you should become a $10 supporter on Patreon, because we're going to talk all about it in Tom and Joey Unfiltered in the May edition. Brandon, what have you been up to? Uh, well, you know, I was able to get to Mexico for a little R&R before we all became shut-ins, but I was able to finish Dragon Quest Eleven, which, just your standard JRPG, uh, save the world sort of thing. It was okay, but it's a story that's been played out many, 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 many times, so <laughs> it was a little difficult to get excited uh, for it, but I had a lot of fun with it. Also finished Luigi's Mansion 3, uh, which was another really, really fun game. Your basic Mario run around different levels, gets harder as you go, and just kind of puzzle solving, figuring out what's going on. Lots and lots of little nuances, lots and lots of little things you could collect here and there. But yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was a good palate cleanser in between Dragon Quest Eleven and jumping into Final Fantasy VII Remake. With Luigi's Mansion, like you're sucking up ghosts with a vacuum as Luigi, right? Like it is far different from a traditional Mario game. You know, what I think is kind of the, the traditional style is just kind of the, the bubbly feel, I guess. Just the feel you get when you play it. Um, obviously, all the characters you're saving are all part of the Mario world, the, the, the Mushroom Kingdom. But it was just a lot of fun, you know, just really light. Uh, you wouldn't think ghosts would be light, but, you know, they were all just cute little ghosts. You're sucking up, you know. Not, nothing whole lot going on with it, but it was, a lot, it was a lot of fun. A really good palate cleanser. Probably took me about uh, 8 to 10 hours, I want to say, right around that area, so... So you enjoyed that game, but nice. you, you hate Super Mario Odyssey. What's up with that? Uh, again, Super Mario Odyssey, they just didn't give me anything new. I, I want to see new things when it comes to games or new editions of games. And Mario Odyssey, it just, I mean, it took you back to Mario 64, which was a great game, but it was Mario 64 with, you know, a new skin. That, that's what I got out of it. But, again, it was fun. I didn't... I've never said that I hated Mario Odyssey. I'm pretty I just sure didn't you're wearing a shirt that says that you hate it with a burning passion. Never said I was, that. Never said that. I was going to say, hate with Mario Odyssey is a strong, strong word. And it's I was, a strong word no matter when you use it. That's so. true. <laughs> but I was going to have to have issues with it because I loved Super Mario Odyssey so much. Yeah, Granted, come from a different standpoint in that I've played Mario 64, but I never beat it. I never got uber deep into it, maybe too, like, through, like, the first couple of worlds or whatever. Uh, because when I played Super Mario 64, that was when I was renting a Nintendo 64 for, like, a week at a time. And so I'd never make it very far, return everything. By the time I got it back, then Super Mario 64, somebody would have saved over my save, so then I'd have to just redo the beginning over and over and over again. Yeah, I'd like to get back to that at some point. It sounds like they, they've Nintendo's made a lot of insinuations that the plan is is that they're going to re-release a lot of those games for the Switch, and so I would definitely love to jump back into that. But I thought I thought Super Mario Odyssey was awesome. That was 
definitely it's I, definitely my favorite game on the Switch. Might be topped by Fire Emblem whenever I find a chance to beat that, but <laughs> I enjoy, I enjoyed Mario Odyssey, but like you, I didn't get very far in it. I probably beat the first two or three bosses. When it came to Mario 64, I believe I encountered every single star in that particular one. So again, I had a lot of experience with that one. So I gotcha. I'm just seeing a lot of the same properties. But again, it's been when did that release? 97, 98, and it's probably been half as long since I played it. So right. I love to troll Brandon about Super Mario Odyssey. It's one of my favorite things, and I totally missed it on the Final Fantasy episode. So I had to make sure that I worked it in here. <laughs> <laughs> Before well, that was a good segue with Luigi's Mansion 3. Totally. Before we move on to Final Fantasy VII Remake, we would like to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. Check out their website at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. If you like our personalities, you can follow at least me on social media. You can email the show at OverratedPod at gmail.com. That's OverratedPod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at TomSidlogic, O-I-O. Spelling out Sidlogic is no easy task. It's T-O-M. Tom's the easy part. Sidlogic, S-E-D-L-A-C-E-K. Then O-I-O for Outside is Overrated. And that's Tom Sidlogic, O-I-O on Twitter and Instagram. Boy, that seems like an awfully long description. <laughs> you can also follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash outside is overrated. And you can follow Hobbybox Burns at Hobbybox, at Hobbybox Burns on Twitter or Hobbybox, just Hobbybox. No, it's at Hobbybox Burns on both Twitter and Instagram, but I've never posted anything to Instagram yet because I still haven't figured out how to use that. So Yeah, this is the 24th episode. You'd think I'd have these social introductions down by now, but, you know, here we are just fucking fumbling through it. It's going to be another magical show. It's it's a whole <laughs> new world, you know. Just, just, just blame coronavirus for anything that goes wrong in this episode. Yep. You, say, you say that sarcastically, Tom, but it is actually going to be a very magical show because... It's Final Fantasy VII Remake, and how do you go wrong with that? Oh, I'll tell you how you go wrong with that. So here we go. A day that I thought would honestly never come. We are going to dive in deep to the Final Fantasy VII Remake. Let's begin our conversation by taking a look at what's familiar with the original title. Now, if you're worried about spoilers, don't be for the first two main segments of the show. We will give you very clear warnings when we get into spoiler territory. We're going to talk about some systems... And some things that if you're familiar with the original game, you'll already be familiar with. Spoilers won't be coming until the final section, and we'll give you plenty of opportunity to smash your phone into a million pieces before we get there. (laughs) (laughs) So, we'll start with the cast. The main cast will be familiar to fans of the original series. You follow Cloud and Cloud Strife around Midgar. You get Barrett, you get Tifa and Aerith. In your guys' opinion, how do they pull off these iconic characters from a game that we decided was the best Final Fantasy title? I'm a Final Fantasy Bobo. I absolutely love uh, every single one of the characters. Uh, Cloud is the ever enigmatic mercenary who we grew to be confused about. Tifa took a little bit of a change in that she seems a, a little bit more mopey in this one, and maybe she was more mopey uh, pre-Midgar versus post-Midgar. Um, yeah, just, uh, I don't know, she just seemed kind of sad for the most part. I always sort of got this impression from her in the original that she seemed just more of this fun-loving character, and... I, Every time she talked to Cloud or she just was just sad about where she was, it seemed like. So that was a little bit different of a character um, trait for her, I thought. Uh, but then you get into Barrett, and I thought Barrett was awesome. He's just this 
big, giant, cursing, no-nonsense behemoth that uses intimidation to his benefit. And You saw that in the first one, but when they had to censor everything he said in the first one because it was 1997, it just pulled so much away from him, I thought. And this one, they just really pushed him to the limit, just this big old preacher who just pushed his beliefs onto everybody else because it's what he knew, it's what he thought, and I thought it was absolutely amazing. I thought they did a great job with the character development in this. So so with Barrett, and and that's one of the performances that has been like on the internet anyway, pretty divisive, especially for folks that just played the demo. So just Barrett in chapter one is a bit stereotypical, over the top kind of black man, like Ebonicky sounding and everything along those lines, which a lot of people were like, oh, like this is a pretty bad depiction square. I think though, it becomes pretty clear as you get further into it, like how much that is all just a facade that he's trying to put on because he thinks that's what he needs to show. But at the beginning, I was like, oh, I don't know if I like this take on Barrett at all. But by like the middle chapters and then especially by the end, like the the journey you take with that character is, is so amazing. And I think that actor in particular does such a good job of like hitting all of these different levels. And like you'll see the parts where Barrett kind of lets that sort of gruff exterior slide a bit and then realizes it and then turns it back on. Uh, it, it's just amazing. And, and so I, I really liked then Barrett by the end. At the beginning, I was super lukewarm on his character. I can see the parts with Tifa that you were talking about too, in that I think what they're trying to do with her is showing the level of responsibility she has, which you get some of that because she owns the bar in the original Final Fantasy VII. But showing how that's weighing on her and, and so you get it's like kind of the opposite of Barrett. So where Barrett, all Cloud gets to see is him sort of this gruff exterior that he's promoting, but he's really this softy inside. With Tifa, with Tifa's interactions with Cloud, you see the parts that she's hiding from everybody else, but everybody else looks up to her as like this this leader and a pillar of the community in the Sector 7 slums. Uh, and I thought like, just seeing those different dynamics at play and the different sides of people that Cloud sees and that we see as the audience through Cloud, I thought was really interesting. But I think my favorite of the main characters, as far as the differences from the OG FF7 to the remake, is Aerith. Because she is just so witty and snarky and funny and messes with Cloud so much. And just like the, the interaction of her with Cloud is so great. I just love it so much. That's interesting that you say that because I was so put off from their first interactions together. The first segment where you have them together and they're first interacting and chatting back and forth. Like I was just, I'm like, I don't know if I enjoy this game at all. I just, <laughs> I maybe it was the voice actress. I don't know, but their initial segment together, that first chapter where they're together and they're making their ways through the slums to, uh, was it Sector 5 they were going to at that point? Yep. But yep. I I thought that they were both just really wooden there, and I hated the interactions between the two of them. And I, Aerith is my favorite character in Final Fantasy VII, so I was super disappointed by the initial portrayal. 
if you take a look at how she was in the initial interaction in the church, though, obviously it was the second interaction, but that interaction in the church where Cloud falls down and he's sitting there and she's what I got from that is she was trying to talk to him and kind of push him almost a, a little bit more because he almost didn't seem like he wanted, had anything to, to do with that place at the time. And I felt like she was just trying to push this in. What's funny, I just played this about an hour ago. I jumped back into Chapter 8 on hard mode trying to push him forward and just say, hey, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, and kind of pecks at him a little bit, but eventually gets him to do what she wants him to do. And that's how I saw that kind of scene going. So where it seemed wooden, it seemed like Cloud didn't really want anything to do with her at that point, uh, but she kind of forced that interaction. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting watching it again and trying to pull out what you know from the ending of the game now and then pushing that back to now and seeing, oh, that actually makes more sense now than it did the first time it went through. So I think you'll be quite surprised if you decide to play this scene on hard mode after finishing the game. Interesting. Maybe the, the nuance was wasted on me. I've grown to like her it more. It was for me at first, too. Interesting. Any other thoughts on the main characters before we jump on to something else? I mean, Cloud I, Strife, he's the main character. Like, Do we like this portrayal of him? Yes, I think Cloud's a really hard character. Cloud's a really hard character to explain. So you're seeing the world through Cloud's lens. And the problem with the original Final Fantasy VII, I guess I don't say problem from like it was bad, but the problem is is he's an unreliable narrator because he can't keep straight what the fuck's going on in his own head. And we're seeing like all of this stuff and it, and it, it's it's a really tricky character to play because he's trying to put this like gruff exterior and he's trying, he's really playing a role. He's trying to be what he thinks he should be, but he actually isn't at all. And I think in the performance, you start to see that as it develops through the chapters. And I do really like the way that they did things with his softening towards, like, especially you see it mostly with Barrett, but then even seeing like Aerith kind of find the cracks in his armor, his personality armor, and, and sort of chip away at that to the point where you see kind of his fondness for these other characters. It, it, it's rewarding as he opens up a little bit more and as his personality that has always been there starts to show more because he's more willing to kind to let that out with the other characters. I also think they do a really good job and we'll get to those characters a little bit later, but with the avalanche crew of trying to pull more of that out in him and you get to see him struggle with them a lot more of, I'm not going to let these guys in. I'm not going to let these guys in because I don't want to deal with this. I'm just a mercenary but they just whittle away at it, whittle away at it. And uh, one of the chapters that has some new bits in it, like that's when you really start to see cloud open up in chapter four. And, and so, yes, I, I actually, I really do think they do a good job with that. Um, and then he has the soft moments when he needs to have the soft moments and then he hardens and is kind of that badass when he needs to be that badass later on in the story too. He doesn't give us a soft finish, does he? <laughs> <laughs> no. In the original, they, in Midgar in the original, you only have about four to six hours to work with. So the only character development you get in the original is, oh, I'm a mercenary, I'll do it for the money. 
And then by the time you're leaving, it's, oh, I don't know what's happening inside my brain. I got to figure this out. And that's what you get in the first four hours of the original. And this one, they really build them out. And like you said, they, they find the cracks in his armor. And you can start to see the person underneath this cold-hearted exterior. So I thought they did a really good job of expanding his his personality. Yeah, he was neat. Is this game trying to tell us that all men put up facades and these personas that we want the world to see and it's up to the women in our lives to break those barriers down? I mean, you could definitely take that from it. I, I think it also shows, I mean, with Tifa too, it shows that all people do. And like, I mean, leadership is a persona for the most part. There's very few people that are the same when they're in a leadership position and act the same as they do just in, in normal life too. And so I think it plays with that and shows that quite a bit. Moving from characters to combat, combat was a core element of Final Fantasy VII. This game moves from a traditional JRPG system to an action RPG. There's still lots of fighting. What did you guys think of the combat overall and the rank-and-file enemies? The combat is what pulled me into this. Uh, from right when you get off the train and you're starting to beat up some of the soldiers, you could really tell that they were going for something that was was different. It followed the lines of Final Fantasy 15 a little bit, but at the same time, the magic system was so much better. They brought it in. You don't have to use magic on everything, but after you assess somebody and you say, oh, hey, that's a weakness, now you can exploit that one weakness, which helps your regular attacks in battle. And I thought everything was put together really, really well. A lot of the boss battles, if you can't find the strategy on how to beat it, you're going to get wiped. A lot of them have this specific strategy you need. And I, I just thought from start to finish that the battle was super, super clean. Everything was really, really tight in its controls. And I really, really enjoy the battle system in this. Yeah, I think there's a legitimate reason why they start you with the assess materia because they want you to run assess on your enemies so you know what you have to do against them because if you just blindly attack them in a lot of the battles with maybe the minions or the normal like gorgers or whatever that you would normally fight like you can be okay in those but you're going to need to play to those weaknesses if you're going to be successful against a lot of the bosses. And that gives you, at least sometimes, the assess materia gives you an idea of what you need to do against them. Uh, but I will agree, this is definitely kind of that next evolution from the Final Fantasy XV battle system. And I think they do a phenomenal job of... I think you get the idea that this is what they wanted to do with Final Fantasy 15, but couldn't figure out how to do it because in Final Fantasy 15, it was basically hold X through the combats. Oh, somebody needs a little bit of healing or I'm going to throw out a little bit of magic here or there. You never felt like you needed to do that. But in this, like you have to switch to the different characters and you have to be managing which one has full ATB bars or which one you need an attack from to try to build up the stagger meter. And so you're seeing these different pieces from Final Fantasy 15 and stagger from Final Fantasy 13, and it's kind of all wrapping up into what is probably going to be the Final Fantasy battle system for the next series of games, not just Final Fantasy 7 Remake and its sequels, but Final Fantasy 16 probably and beyond. Because this is what is that next generation 
battle system for an RPG, I think. And it marries them fast. Yes. And it marries those two. Like you can take a break going into tactical mode by hitting the X button. Like you get the time to go through the menus and figure out, okay, I'm going to do this. Uh, Assess somebody quickly while you're in tactical mode. So you can see, okay, yeah, they're weak to this. So I need to make sure I switch to this or, you know, by holding L2, you can have one of the other characters do a magical attack or, or use the ATB bars for uh, one of their abilities while you stay on the character that you're controlling. Uh, and so I think that's, I think that's really well done and it gives you that breather to tactically think about what you need to do. And then you can jump back into the fast paced action of everything. Maybe it would have been helpful to give a little description of how combat works too. <laughs> so basically you have up to three characters in your party. You're controlling one of them, but you can switch to the other characters by pressing left or right on the D pad. You have a basic attack button and that fills up a gauge. And once that gauge is full, you can trigger that, use that to trigger a spell, an item, or an ability for a given character. And when you go into the menu to do that, it slows down time immensely. There's also positioning with enemies. You can try to get behind them. You can add elements to your attack. There's a lot of kind of depth depth to it. Yes. The other thing about it, too, is they do a fantastic job of making each of the four characters, like, control and feel very distinct from the others. So you have Aerith and Barrett who are more ranged attackers, and unless you put certain weapons on Barrett where he can be up close attacker. Uh, and then you have Tifa and Cloud who are melee attackers, but they're each different. So Barrett is all about just constant fire. You're just holding down that fire button and then you'll whip out once you get both ATB bars filled, you'll do some massive fuck-all attack uh, with that. Aerith is about peppering them with magical attacks, and then once you fill up an ATB bar, you can do something either a little more powerful, or you can use Prey when you f- heal up or fill up both your ATB bars to heal the whole party a little bit. And Cloud... Or you can drop an assist on your other people, so you can so they can do a little bit more damage, or have a little bit more abilities, or yeah. you know a very good assist character too, trying to power up the other team. Yeah, and then Cloud is your sort of typical grindy out slash with the sword as much as possible. You have two different modes of attacks with him that are more powerful or are more like defensible, and then with Tifa, she's just a speed demon with fists left and right flying and kicking all over the place. My favorite character in combat to play as is Tifa. It's so much fun. There's so many different things you can do with her different abilities once you unlock them. And then once you stagger enemies and you use her unbridled strength to get her powered up, like, powerful attacks with Triangle, those boost that stagger damage so that all the other damage that everybody else is doing to those enemies is amplified because she's putting on her rise and fall and omni slash attacks and whirling uppercut to be able to boost the percentage of that above 160% to like 215% or even 300% damage. If you're really peppering on the attacks, uh, it's just really, really, really cool and really well done. And so fun to switch between the different characters and play a little bit differently. Brandon, who are your favorite characters to control? My favorite character to control, right off the bat, Cloud. I love his Punisher defense stance in close combat uh, because you can really lay on the damage there and it's a little bit easier to control. 
Barrett's a lot of fun too because you're just back kind of sitting on the sitting on the back lines, uh, almost like a traditional mage, but just peppering the crap out of people. Uh, if you need to, you can throw down stone skin, which will reduce damage quite a bit. I like to throw on. I can't remember the name of the material, but it's uh, the the one where you're basically the focus now for the next like 60, 90 seconds. Oh yeah, um, I like to throw that down so everybody's coming and attacking him, which opens up stuff for Klaus, so he's not getting knocked back, so he can do more damage. So Tifa's not getting do- knocked back, so she can do more damage. It's really there's what I love about it is there's just so many styles that you can choose for this, depending on what material you're using, assist material, magic material. And you don't have to play the same through any of the playthroughs. Even if you get really good at playing one style with a cloud, you can switch it up by switching somebody else's play up. And the synergy that everybody has with each other is just phenomenal. I gravitated toward Aerith. I don't know. I like the uh, backline magical attacks and her ability to double cast spells. I would fill up stagger meters that way, then I'd switch to cloud and hit the nail on the head. boom goes the dynamite since we're talking about combat some of the criticisms I have of the game happened within combat so I want to bring those up right now overall the combat system's great there's some clunky things that moving forward I really hope they figure out there is nothing more frustrating even if you are locked on to a freaking enemy that you wind up one of your big abilities and it'll miss the fucker like, if I'm locked onto that son of a bitch, that attack better freaking hit him because I don't want to waste my goddamn ATB bars on that attack. And then the limit breaks are freaking amazing, just like they were in the first one. But there's a few times, especially in boss battles, where you'll get that limit built up, you'll click the limit attack, and then right before you start swinging it, Goes into a cutscene, limit break never happens, you wasted it on fucking nothing, and there is nothing more aggravating than that. And so those are some of the things, and just sort of targeting in general, the camera is a bit wonky in combat at times, and it gets really difficult. So there's times where, especially as Barrett, I'll have somebody targeted, I'll be shooting, I'll move a little bit, and now I'm just shooting at air somewhere else completely, and I have to completely like move everything around to try to get him refocused on attacking the right effing thing, even if I have them locked to some extent sometimes. And so there's some of those there's some of those pieces that could just be a little more refined and honed to really make the combat system a hundred percent like awesome and perfect. I- I agree with your cutscene. That does suck big time. But I disagree. I think it's great that you can miss. Even I tried to do a limit break on Reno, and he jumped out of the way because he's so fast. And I thought to myself, that's my own fault for not staggering him mm-hmm. first or for not getting to a spot where he was incapacitated. And he jumped out of the way. And good for him because I jump out of the way of big stuff all the time. It's nice that the enemies can do that as well. I agree with that example, but when I'm trying to hit a 1500 fucking whack a box and I get <laughs> up, the fucking box is right in front of me. It's not moving, and I miss the fucking thing. That's stupid. So that's the example that drives me full. Sounds like operator error to me. Sounds like operator error. <laughs> 
<laughs> I see your points, Bernsey. This is going to uh, bleed into something we're going to talk about later, but one of the challenges I found in the game and in, in combat specifically was not having enough materia slots. Like, all of these enemies mm-hmm. have weaknesses, and I felt like I was so constrained in the materia that I could equip is sometimes I just didn't have the tools to fill up the stagger bar, and there are actually times when I just quit mid-battle, restarted, and, like, re-equipped my materia so I didn't waste my time in a long, drawn-out battle just because I didn't have enough materia slots to be adequately prepared. Yeah, I had I had one instance. I, let's get into another one of my criticisms that I have. A lot of times, there's some times where the game surprised me. So if you die in battle, you lose a battle, you restart from right before that battle, which is great. It's awesome. Like, that's awesome. Except for when you get into boss battles that sometimes have three phases or more phases, and you die on that last phase... You got to fucking play all that other stuff, which in some instances is fine because a lot of the battle is built off of how well you do at the start to carry you through the end when it's a lot harder. But when near the end of the game, some of the battles are like there's a lot of fucking phases and it's 45 minutes between the start and the end and you fail at that second to last phase. And now you got to replay all this other lengthy stuff that's still considered part of the boss fight. There's a couple of them where they actually break it up and it works, but there's some of them where it doesn't. And I know that it can just be responded to with the whole Dark Souls get good. Um, But for a game that seems to do a lot to honor and respect the player's time, there's a few of those shortfalls where it really falls down. And it gives you options where, so there's one boss battle where you switch party members from a group of two to another group of two midway through. And when I died in the second phase of that boss fight, it gave me the option to either start with the first group or to start with that second group. And I wish they did that in some of those more lengthy boss battles. Do you want to start from this phase, start from the beginning of the battle, restart from previous checkpoint? Like, I did that once. It took me back, like, three hours. <laughs> it's like, okay, maybe you should have given me a couple more checkpoints. I'm going to load my saves so I start, like, where I fucking was. So that was the other thing that I-, I would like them to look at a little bit more. I know that there needs to be punishment and there needs to be negatives to it. But in some of those, like, really lengthy battles to have you replay some of the same stuff, especially when it's just time like it's easy to get through some of those other portions or half of the battle is like moving from place to place and not even fighting stuff some of that stuff they could have refined and honed down just a bit more i think so that would be one of the other criticisms i have with combat and and how like the checkpointing works with that brandon do you take any issue with those thoughts no i i guess maybe i didn't die as much on some of the more lengthy battles there were a couple of them that got really really frustrating but just the fact that they gave us the option to start before a battle versus at a checkpoint down Uh the road because you had to save two hours ago and now you're jumping your butt down 800 feet down into a crater i i don't know i felt like the save system, it was a lot better than it was in the original, so I have yeah. no complaints. 
it's about yep. where they say for how you had to start over. And actually, to Tom's point, restarting a battle, I think that's exactly why they gave you that option because they know you're going to jump into battles unprepared. And after 10 minutes, you've only taken this enemy down 10%. You're doing okay, but there's no way you're going to defeat a phase three of this particular battle. So I think they did that on purpose, and, and I applaud them for that. Agreed. What did you guys think of the minion-types enemies? For me, I thought they were repeated a little bit. I, you guys both beat this game. I'm 20 hours in, but I bought my palette full of were-rats. <laughs> that gets a little bit better. The, in some of the later dungeons, you're not fighting as many of the same type and what they do to mix it up a little bit is they'll throw three or four different types of maybe things you'd already been fighting but they put them together and you have to figure out which ones you need to take down first which ones are the weakest but do the most damage which ones you can have on the screen a little bit longer so i think in the long term they do a pretty good job of mixing up the different types of battles you're in even though they're using a lot of this i think 114 different enemies is what they have i think mm -hmm. that's what the counter is in the game I so like that it seems like it's pretty well done in terms of the, the different scenarios they throw you in. Yep. I, I will agree, though. There are, like, only so many times you can defeat a gorger where it's like, well, it's just another gorger or it's just another were-rat. But they do try to mix it up and, and lump them together with, with different groups, which I think does help. And, and we didn't really talk too much about that, but I, the character models for the monsters are really good. And I think it's really cool how some of them have different attacks that you kind of see them setting up with the animations so you can prepare for it from that perspective. And I think it really shines in some of the, the boss fights or like the mini boss fights. So like, especially we talked about Reno a little bit ago, like when you see him winding up one of his attacks, it's like, okay, shoot, I got to block right away. Or I got to dodge this because he's going to just light me the frick up if I don't. <laughs> um, and so like those cues, I think are really good and, and add to kind of the life of the, of the monsters as well as then uh, just gameplay in general. And it all feeds in together. Yeah. The uh, character models were great for the minions. What do we think about the boss fights? Oh, I love the boss fights. Every single boss fight seemed like it had some sort of strategy in order to defeat it. You could beat some of them without that strategy, but if you couldn't figure out what was going on, you'd have to start from scratch. Just the, the mechanics in each one of them were just so much fun to try to figure out. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them were very, very frustrating until you figured it out. But the bosses were really cool. Every single one of them was really unique. They did uh, quite a few callbacks, which I thought was so much fun. Uh, some of the things where you're like, how are they going to incorporate this? And then they do, and you're like, yes, this is awesome. And you just have a blast playing it. Yeah, I'll agree. I think there's like 50 or so actual like boss or mini boss battles, depending upon how you want to classify them. And each one, each one is so distinct and different and interesting, and you have to have a different strategy depending upon the different monster types. And sometimes that can be a negative because you don't have the right mix of things, and so it can get a little frustrating. But then it's also rewarding if you're able to still fight through it. And if you die, then it's like, okay, jump into menu. I really need this material on this character, and that's going to make things so much easier for me. And then jump in after that and usually have success. 
but yeah, some of some of the boss battles specifically, even though they were tough as nails, I was loving every minute of it because it was so much more interesting and elaborate than what you had than the trouble you than the difficulty you had with figuring that out with the old battle system in the original game. And I think just having a block or dodge in there and deciding when is the best chance to do that in some of the battles, it's just so much more rewarding to like try different strategies and, and, and seeing like how someone attacks and instantly being like, okay, I really need to block this battle because that's going to be the key to stopping this or this. And then stumbling across like an ability, it's like, oh shoot, I need to use that more because this actually had this good effect. And so it, it rewards trial and error and it rewards kind of really thinking things through from the get go and like sort of evaluating what they're doing to figure out what it is you have from your tricks in your arsenal that, that can stop that. And so I think the boss battles are all fantastic. Even like freaking Tonberry as cheap as that stupid son of a bitch is, uh, I think is still pretty fun and rewarding once you actually beat it. Yeah, if there's 50 bosses, that's roughly three per chapter or one per hour you put into this game, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, because right? I, I, my final playtime was 51 and a half hours. And mine was 48 and a half. Pretty good pacing. I, the pacing in this game was amazing. Maybe we want to get into that when we talk about the story. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about with the that are familiar is the location. Midgar is perhaps the most iconic location in any Final Fantasy game. It's now fully realized in a 3D environment. How did they pull it off? What were a couple of the highlights of the city for us? So, to be honest, I was surprised with how many of the locations, seeing them in this game, like I instantly remembered from the original Final Fantasy game. Uh, I've played the beginning of Final Fantasy VII maybe a, a handful of times, three or four. So I've played it enough, but I don't. I typically don't have a super great memory for things like that. But like seeing Seventh Heaven, the bar, and like instantly seeing that, and then even though you don't get to go to the basement, every time one of them would take the pinball machine down to the basement, like I'm instantly seeing them all crowded into that little room down in the basement. Uh, having their little avalanche meetings. It, it's so great. And that first time, once you kind of settle in, you sleep down in Midgar, you wake up and you walk out, and what used to be the overworld music plays, and you see just the vastness of Midgar and how cool it is to look out over the slums and then see the plate up above and then the sunlight coming in from the edges of the plate is just so freaking cool. And then at night, looking up at the plate, and then once you get to sort of see the differences between what things are like on top of the plate as far as on the bottom of the plate, it's just so... It's so jaw-droppingly awesome to see everything that you used to see in just those 2D sprites uh, realized fully in this 3D world. It's just breathtaking at times. Yeah, it was really gorgeous. I, I thought Midgar was amazing. There were certain areas I just run back and forth in just to see the level of detail they had, whether it was big piles of junk or the different areas in a slum or the 
Gardens or Chinner's headquarters, how beautiful they made everything, how beautiful and shiny and meticulous everything was up there. Uh, the first focus of the entire game, you know, this Midgar was five hours, and they expanded this into a 48 to a 50-hour world. Um, I thought it was beautiful. Sector 5 had people talking as you're running through. I mean, mm -hmm. just the level of detail. You would finish a quest, and then as you're running out from this quest, people are talking – they're saying different things based off of what you just finished. And just how beautifully they just brought everything together in this world to just make, make it just seem vibrant um, and lived in. And it was beautiful. I loved it. I agree that the city was beautiful at parts, but I one of my other problems with the game was there was a lot of cloud walking down narrow hallways and squeezing in between things. Like there were a lot of moments, especially in the Mako reactors, like just walk down this catway, climb down a ladder, walk down another narrow walkway, squeeze between some pipes, and that kind of <clears> stuff <throat> just kind of drove me crazy. That might have been the thing that drove me crazy in the first one too because there was a lot of that going on. It did remind me a little bit about what I didn't like from Final Fantasy XIII in that respect. But they just, I don't know, just with, with all their models and everything that they brought up. I mean, you're sure you were squeezing through boxes, but they were beautiful boxes, right? They did a great <laughs> job on this. They were beautiful boxes. <laughs> I just had so much <laughs> I just had so much fun seeing everything and I, I, I didn't quite share that with you because it, mm -hmm. every time I saw something, no matter how simple it was, I was just wowed by just how well they did on it. And and I think I agree that a lot of it is you're walking through kind of similar areas, and sometimes it makes you walk unnecessarily slowly through pieces. Oh my god, uh, that drove me crazy at times. Yeah, and, and so that can get frustrating. I think what they do to try to help with that. I mean, if you look like look at it from a technical perspective, the reason why they're doing that is probably because they're trying to load in this next big area that you're moving towards. And so from a technical standpoint, that's what they have to do with the like technology that they have currently. On next gen, maybe they're able to do a lot more with that. But what they try to do to make that better or more palatable is increasing the amount of banter that you have with the people that you're traveling with, and then also increasing that sort of lore building of the people around you. And so that first time when you're walking through kind of streets and alleys and stuff, and you're basically just walking, there's not much else happening. You get peppered with all of these people around you reacting to the reactor explosion that just happened. And the mixture of, what the hell's going on to devastation to where's my, where's my brother? I can't find my brother. And like you get a feeling that you didn't get in the original game of like the vastness of the consequences of the actions that your group just took and constantly they do a really good job of adding that emotional impact in there multiple times throughout the game. So that as you're doing these larger things with avalanche, you're seeing the public reaction to that. And some of the people are behind you, but a lot of the people fucking hate Avalanche for it because you're making their life worse, even though what you're doing is better for the world, supposedly. Uh, it, it's it's really interesting. And the way that they use kind of that ambient dialogue to boost that, I think, helps. And then, yeah, the banter between the characters, I think, is there to help 
kind of give you something to focus on while you're moving through, you know, shiny corridor number five and uh, dark alleyway number 12. Yeah. And if there was a way to mask the technical issues of loading things in, then my complaint goes away completely because there are no loading screens in this game and it's a big city with lots of people in it. So, but I think there's things, so it's early on in the game. So I'm okay with talking about this, but the first time you see Sephiroth and you're walking down that hallway and it's like black and white and you're walking towards it, there's things they could have done to make that go faster. Cause I'm just walking at a snail's pace in black and white with dramatic music, and it's a kind of cool thing at first, but then it's like, okay, I get the vibe you're doing, but it's been like a minute for me to walk to this spot to see this cutscene. Let's move it along a little bit. And from a psychological standpoint, like they could have had you skip down like the hallway or the alleyway, and it would have like made things seem more jarring to you, and it would have, I think, helped move things along a little bit. So there's some times where they do that in the game. Uh, some of the other points where you notice it, it, it does it a lot more, it seems like, or at least I noticed it a lot more earlier in the game. But like when you're escaping with Avalanche to get back to the Sector 7 slums, and it's like, it does, like you were saying, Tom, it feels like you're unnecessarily just having the duck underneath all of these different things while you hear them gabbing up there. Um, I love that so, you yeah. are ducking and weaving as you describe <laughs> this to us on the internet. But, but overall, it like sur- surpassed my expectations and there's even some times later on in the game where you could tell they couldn't do things graphically that they wanted to so instead what they do is they try to make the environment look like just an up version of what was in the original game and i thought that was really cool too there's one time when you're climbing up the plate and you see the environments down below and it was like it didn't look great. It didn't look high res at all, but it like brought back that aesthetic of the original in a really cool way that I thought was interesting. And I thought that that was a nice kind of way to nod back to the original and to the nostalgia that people have for that game uh, and, and show you that they're still trying to pay tribute to that um, with this. I thought that was really cool. And then just the way, like, the truck when you're escaping from Shinra, like, bounces kind of, like, stupidly like the original one does, I thought was really funny also. Good stuff. Midgar is an amazing location, and they pulled it off admirably here. Originally, we had thought about talking about Materia, but in our Final Fantasy episode, I talked about how much I love it. It's still my favorite magic system. I think they did it really well here. But we've already kind of talked about it when talking about the combat. Do you guys have any other thoughts or notes you want to include about Materia before we move on? I just like the fact that they don't rely on magic. It's mostly used to push a battle and to, to fill up that stagger bar, but you you just you don't need it for the majority of the battles. And I did like that. So just like Final Fantasy XV, you didn't need it, but it was nice to be able to have it for when you wanted it or when it was useful. So that's what I enjoyed about the magic system. Well, and, and I think also, like, as you start to get more connected slots, like, how you use those connected materia, and they do expand some of those blue materia a little bit, so you have, like, the warding ones, and then the elemental ones, which were in there before, it, it's it's an interesting way for you to, because it makes you have very specific decisions as to what things do I want to prioritize, because like you said earlier, Tom, 
it's a premium as to what spots you have and what material you can use on each character. And so you really have to think about what's most important for what I'm aiming for with this character. The one thing that I thought was a major drawback between besides the limitations on how much material you could have only one summon per character. Like you didn't, you couldn't load up one character with all of your summon material and just go hog wild. If you wanted to, I felt like that was super limiting and, the fact that summons could only be used well, in certain battles, that was a huge bummer for me. Well, what they did too is you could only use... A, they, they didn't fill up very fast either, so it's not like you could use two summons in any specific battle, really. I, I, it, any, at any one point, I couldn't ever cast more than one summon during a given battle. So, that being said, I don't think you needed more than one either, which is maybe what they were going for. I mean, if I have the magic points, I want to be able to cast... Shiva and Ifrit and Rama, I want to just like go nuts, man. <laughs> but overall, still an awesome system, and they did it really well here. Before we embark on what's new with the Final Fantasy VII Remake, we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. Premier Health has solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident and work injuries, and more. We suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. We talked quite a bit about what's familiar with the Final Fantasy VII Remake. This game was a major transformation from the original game. Now, let's dive into some of the new wrinkles in the remake. One thing that immediately stands out is the fleshed-out side characters from the beginning of the game. You spent a lot more time with Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse than you did in the original entry. What did you guys think of these characters and the extra attention that was paid to them? I, I thought it was really cool. Uh, you know, you, you got to learn a lot more about Jesse, you know, being her family, uh, Big's past, sort of why Wedge was introduced to the group. Uh, it was a lot of fun seeing them as a bigger character, as a bigger piece of the story, and really being able to connect with them. Because you, you got to have a few of those, you know, heave moments with them, you know, as they're uh, climbing the Sector 7 pillar, you know, like they did in the original one is you were more connected with them so then when things started happening to them you felt something instead of just like oh you know more casualties in this big war against shinra so i thought the extra character development was awesome well and, and, it, and it's interesting too because they use that to help draw more of the character out of cloud and i thought that that was done really well and because i they do a good job of making you as the player connected to each of them as a personality because they each have a distinct personality that's kind of endearing some might be put off by just how forward jesse is and how flirty she is or just how much freaking wedge talks about eating all the time but they're, they're endearing characters and then that time when you get kicked out of the bar because this is avalanche only and you're not an avalanche like it hurts to walk away from all those characters and then that next thing that you do in the game is you go on secret mission with Jesse up to the plates and you get all of this backstory and all this information about these characters and their interplay between each other and the struggles that they have and why they're committed to the cause. And it's just, it's so interesting. And you start to see uh, as you're drawn into them, clouds sort of start to like hanging out with them and finds that there's companionship there and that they're not just this like avenue towards money. And I think it's really cool how they, they do that and add those layers to that. 
I agree that they did a nice job fleshing out these characters and that it was really well done, but is that what we wanted in our Final Fantasy VII Remake? Did we really want to learn more about Biggs and Wedge and Jesse? I'm not saying that I wanted to, but I'm glad I did. I, I was going to say I was looking forward to hopefully getting more characters that you learn more about and kind of feel connected to aside from just the main characters, because in the original final fantasy seven, like other than Zach and maybe like, and Marlene, you really don't have or give two shits about anybody else other than your party characters. And so it's nice to have more people that you're connected to. And it, cause it feels more important than when they make sacrifices for the cause or when you need to try to save them. So it's that much more when you're working your way up the sector seven pillar to try to stop the plate. Like you're not just connected to them. You're connected to the people underneath the plate too. And and you have a little bit more of an understanding, uh, I think, which leads into like the side quests. And the thing that those add to it is that you get more of an understanding of the personalities that live in these different slums. So in Sector 7, in Sector 5, in Wall Market, you have a more of an affinity that you build with these different characters. And so your actions to try to protect them or save them or liberate that area of the slums it just feels that much more... It, like, it feels that much more desperate and it's that much more interesting to try to do those things. So you bring up the side quest, and this was maybe my biggest issue with the entire game. There's a lot more side content in the remake than in the original game. These side quests could range from finding cats to hunting down monster variants. Uh, you know, I truly hated finding cats. That is not something that I care about in any game, let alone the remake uh -huh. of one of my favorite games of all time. What were your guys' opinions on the side quests and the rewards they offered? I would say some of the side quests... Some of the side quests were interesting and rewarding. The stuff with Johnny is, is is funny. He's just a stupid, stupid character. And then just seeing the stupid stuff he gets himself into and how he almost, like, ruins Avalanche for everybody. And then you get to Wall Market, and he's just... He's, it's like, bro this and bro that. I, I thought that, that was really interesting. I will agree, finding kids, finding cats... It was interesting to, like, see the kids hang out in Sector 5, but the whole, like, trying to track things down through the environment is dumb. It's funny because the game knows that because, like, when you find the final cat and it runs away and Cloud's like, this sucks. This is stupid. And you're like, yes, it is. So why did you make me do this, you know? <laughs> I thought side quests were a good way to introduce the new content. You know, they didn't add a lot to the story, which is fine because now that I'm going through and I'm playing this in hard mode, I would have hated having to do all of these things to advance the story. But because there's side, I, I can just skip that and just complete the chapter on hard mode, which is, you know, obviously what you need to do in order to platinum this particular game. Mm -hmm. But just being able to not have to do the additional content now is nice. And I'm knocking out a chapter in hard mode in like 45 minutes to an hour where a lot of these chapters were two, three, sometimes four hours, depending on how much running around you were doing. So it's nice to put that stuff onto the side where it belongs and do it if you want to, but don't have to, but still have it as a means 
to explore the world, to go into places in the different sectors that you wouldn't if you're just following the main story. Yeah, that's a good argument. I mean, I in general, I like side content. I like wandering around and seeing what a world has to offer, but like just the premise of some of those was so silly. Like the side quests are better in certain parts. Like I think all of the side stuff in Wall Market was great. And I think a lot of the reason why it was was because, A, a lot of that already existed in the first game, but B, a lot of that was loosely tied back into the whole story of dealing with Don Corneo in Wall Market, and so it all kind of made sense together, and the stuff that wasn't deeply connected was either connected to Johnny, if you did the Johnny quests, or Murray, if you did the Murray quests, and so then, like, it all made sense with other things. Whereas some of the ones that are clunkers, like finding the cats or finding the kids or or like wandering out into the middle of nowhere to do some things, just seem like more tedious than maybe you would want or need to have to, to be. Yeah, I mean, I guess instead of this side content, I would have rather the game went further into the originals territory, like getting to Junon Harbor or something like that's where I would have preferred the resources going. I did enjoy... I did enjoy the Chad Lee summons battles, though, because that really put you to the test to try to figure out ways to fight these things and which characters should you use when you have the options to choose which characters you have, like when you approach a given attack or, or, or a given summon battle. Uh, I really like that aspect of it to unlock some of those summons that he had available. I really like Chad Lee, too, because you don't get your first summer in the original until after you're out of Midgar. There are no summons before you leave Midgar. So how are you supposed to bring in the summon aspect into a Final Fantasy game when all that content in the original wasn't even in your game? So I thought they did a really good job of using him to bring in those summons into Midgar so you could use those now instead of having to wait for the next installment. So I thought that was brilliantly done. And being able to use some of that content where that's all end game stuff in mm -hmm. uh, in the future. And it just set Chadley up a little bit. He's a new, completely new character in the game. He gives you, you meet him early on, he gives you these challenges to like assess different monsters, find their strengths and weaknesses, and he gives you a series of rewards. He also gives you VR training battles where you fight a summon, and if you beat the summon, you can you then get that materia so you, you can equip the summon. And as much of a doofus as Chadley was, I really enjoyed it. And probably one of my favorite moments of the game is in Wall Market. Uh, once Cloud has the dress on and you go to talk to Chadley, it is hilarious. Oh, if you haven't I didn't done do that. that. Yeah, you I missed that. I want... The next time you work through that, you have to do that. It's so funny because <laughs> he doesn't know how to handle the feelings he's having looking at Cloud in a dress. <laughs> so great. Oh, I can't wait. That'll be good. No doubt, I miss that too. <laughs> Another new wrinkle they added in this version of Final Fantasy VII is the ability to upgrade equipment. Instead of just selling your old gear once it gets replaced, you hang on to it, and throughout the game you get points that you can spend on upgrades as you level up. You purchase upgrades like materia slots, or bonus to your attack, or bonus to your magic power, or extra hit points. They give you a lot of flexibility for your builds through upgrading your weapons. You know, I thought it was a lot of fun that they introduced this, and I thought it was going to be more like Final Fantasy X, like the orb system, where it's like, all right, well, I'm going to unlock these ones, and that's going to be cool, and the new abilities and stuff. 
but after a while, just like, am I even selecting the right things that should be going together? So after about chapter nine or ten, I threw caution to the wind. I went to visit Chadley, dropped all the skills that I had, and I just went to auto mode and said, all right, well, this is going to be my primarily attack weapon. So auto attack, using the auto attack abilities. This one's going to be one of my defensive weapons. So I'm just going to set up an auto trigger to just learn the defensive things first. So it was cute right off the bat, but towards the end game content, it really doesn't do anything for you. So it, it was all right, but not my favorite system. I, I really wish the game would give you a time count as to how long you're in the upgrade weapons menu specifically. I would guess out of my 51 and a half hours, probably two to three hours was me going through the weapons throughout the entire game and determining what it is I want to level up or not for a given character. Uh, like there's lots of times because some of them are giving you a boost to specific materia power. So like fire materia damage or lightning materia damage. And so I would be jumping back, looking at, okay, this is the materia I'm primarily using on this character. So I'm going to boost this and this. And then I'm going to go to the third sub tier of this weapon and unlock this materia slot because I want to put more materia on this character. And so it became this kind of like metagame as to if... This weapon is leaning more towards magic damage. I'm going to unlock these materia slots as fast as I can, and then I'm going to boost any of the damage. And this character, I actually cast, like, buffs on them a lot, so I'm going to have the 10% buff, like, length. And so, like, it allows you to really get into it. And I love that. And it also opened up the opportunity to have builds for characters. So it's like when I use the Buster Sword, I'm playing Cloud this way. When I use Hard Edge, I'm playing Cloud this way. And so you can, by equipping each of your characters a certain way, it allowed you to then say, this is the build I'm using. I'm going to try to attack this monster with this and see how effective I am. I loved it. I thought it was such a great idea. And then building up the proficiency by doing certain abilities uh, with those things and then gaining that ability permanently was awesome as well. I really enjoyed that aspect of it too, because then you get all these abilities that you can always use with those characters once you unlock that. Uh, I, I love that aspect of the game. And that's why it took you two hours longer to beat the game than it took me. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I think it's a really cool system too. There are also new locations within Midgar. You guys have beaten this game. I'm 20 hours in. Why don't uh, Joey? Why don't you tell us about some of the new areas in Midgar? Yeah. So the 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 one big one that I that jumped out at me is the underground lab beneath Sector Seven, and I thought that was really cool because Weimer, when you're going through Sector Seven slums in Chapter Three, Chapter Four, Chapter Three. Uh, sort of alludes to the fact they're like, well, why are all these fiends here? They're not everywhere else. And he's like, well, there's rumors that this lab, and I just thought it was just some random throwaway line to try to explain things. But then like in chapter 12 or 13, you're down there going through these sewers, trying to figure out what's going on and fighting all these other weird monsters. And I thought it was a really cool area to kind of move through. And it was sort of the extrapolation or the expansion of the sewers uh, that you go through in the original game uh, into this huge laboratory uh, where you find these different enemies. I, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. 
and I thought that was a really cool addition because it gave them the ability to make a dungeon specific for this game instead of trying to mirror something that was in the original game. Uh, so that was like, I think the main new location uh, that I remember some of the other side stuff around sector five, too, uh, was a little different. There was a bit more to wall market too. Like, the, yes. There are some new characters in there, a couple new places that you have to visit that weren't in the original, but I don't want to dive too deep into anything spoilery just yet. I will just say, if you really enjoyed the wall market section of Final Fantasy VII Remake, and that you, is need, I... to play, you need to play the Yakuza games. Because like, while I was playing wall market, I was like, this is just like freaking Yakuza. Like... This is so cool, like the mini games that you do at different times and just the ambiance of the area. It was so great. Um, I was just like, this is Final Fantasy Yakuza. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wall Market was awesome. They really expanded that. It was so much fun having more to do there. Uh, really seeing this like seedy underbelly world that, mm -hmm. you know, you, they tried to convey a little bit with the honeybee in in Walmart and then Don Corneo just being this sex crazed lunatic, but <laughs> expanding the whole area of Walmart was just so much fun to see. Like, yeah, this is kind of, you know, this little sleazy underbelly like type world and people come here from sector seven and five because, you know, it's fun. It's a nightlife. It's, you know, their own little mini, you know, Las Vegas almost. Right. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a really, really cool take on Walmart. <laughs> It's where I fell in love with the game. I thought it's the easily the best section that I've played so far. And the best boss battle I thought was in Wall Market as well. Uh, total callback. I'm not going to spoil it. But it was so much fun how they brought this particular enemy from Final yeah. Fantasy VII Original back into the remake. And it was probably my favorite battle of the entire game. So I'm just throwing that out there right now. It was it was a blast. That's yes, it was. I hated it. I hated it with a passion. <laughs> it was my favorite. Before we dive into that and other spoilers, we're going to quick shift gears and we're going to talk about Xbox Game Pass. As part of our support from Patreon, we have promised to do a feature on every edition of the podcast called Game Pass Forever. The first game we featured is Subnautica. I'd like to give big thanks to our supporters on Patreon, especially Pat, Joey, and Billy, our first $10 supporters. As $10 supporters, they get access to an exclusive Tom and Joey podcast through Patreon called Tom and Joey Unfiltered. Once OIO passed $25 of monthly support, I committed to doing a feature on Game Pass every edition. So here we go. With Subnautica, I've talked about it a little bit on the last edition, but now I've actually played the game. I got nearly 10 hours through it. I would have liked to play more, but, you know, I was prepping for this show, so there's a lot of Final Fantasy time in the last month. Basic premise of the game. You crash land on an alien planet and you have a vast ocean to explore. There's no tutorial or guidance and you just die a crazy amount at the beginning. Finding something to eat is challenging. Eventually, I learned that you can eat seaweed, and once I stopped starving to death constantly, the game really opened up. On its surface, it seems like a storyless exploration game, but there is something going on underneath the waves, and it's super interesting. I made it to a main story beat at about 6 hours, and only 12% of players on Xbox received that achievement. So it's just staggering how many people dropped off before actually learning what's going on in this game. And I think the game really struggles from not holding your hand at least a little bit. If you can stick it out and make some equipment like a uh, the enhanced air tank, which allows you to breathe underwater for a minute and a half, and a submersive vehicle, it's a really 
sweet adventure happening under the waves. Well, I don't have a lot of experience with this game. My boy actually played this last weekend and watched him for about 20 minutes. And I believe he really enjoyed this because it didn't hold your hand and it's all exploration. So everything you do is new. They don't tell you what you're supposed to do. And one of the funniest things was he dropped down and he's running out of breath. And he says, no, dad, I just got to get this really fast. I'll make it up in time. I'll make it up in time. And they didn't make it up in time. He's like, eh, I'll get it next time, right? So like you said, it doesn't hold your hand and it makes you try and push your limits. But even he wasn't 100% sure what was going on. He's like, oh, these little things. Yeah, if you aggravate them, they'll attack you. So we're just going to try to stay away from those guys right now or things like that. So I thought it was really cute just the way he was going through it and, you know, trying different things and, you know, pushing himself. Again, not a lot of experience, but I can definitely see, Tom, where you're saying they don't hold your hand and they just kind of push forward with things like that. And I I get that hand-holding... I get that hand-holding can break the immersion a little bit, but you need just a little guidance. Like, eventually, the radio will go off, and it'll give you, like, a beacon to go explore, and that's when they start giving you the breadcrumbs of the store. And, like, I really want to know what happens with that story. It's super interesting, but, like, I nearly dropped off this game before getting the first radio transmission. And maybe that's a different with the time as different with the times as well, because another game they gave you absolutely no help with was Minecraft. And my boy absolutely loved Minecraft, jumping in and just getting what he wanted to do done. And if that new generation likes not having their handhelds, did anybody hold their hand with Battletoads? No, nobody held their hand with Battletoads. And that was one of the hardest games ever, I thought, you know, once you get to the bicycle races. But they didn't hold your hand, and we loved it for it because you would die, and you would start the entire game over, no save points, but you didn't care. You loved the game, so you redid it just to get to that spot and another chance to beat that after 35, 40 minutes of gameplay. I will say, though, like the thing that frustrates me about Minecraft and games like this is I shouldn't have to go like everything should be within the game. I shouldn't have to go to an effing wiki to try to figure out, oh, that's how I have to do this. It either needs to give me places in the game where I can find that information or some sort of avenue to be able to figure that out instead of feeling like I have to either do trial and error or have a wiki screen up while I'm doing this because that just the immersion they're trying to create. They break it right there. Yeah, like not maybe able- this should be a new genre, the, the trial and error genre. <laughs> <laughs> and you heard it first here on OIO. So uh, if you ever say trial and error genre, you owe us a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> I was kicking around different ideas on how to choose the next Game Pass Forever game. I thought about just picking what I was interested in or giving my Patreons a handful of titles to choose from. In the end, I did a poll of the Patreon supporters, and they chose to use a Microsoft randomizer to select the next title. This was an exceptionally stupid idea on my part. (laughs) Over the next month, I will be playing something called Riverbond. Have either of you guys heard of this game? Nope, never. I've heard the name, but that's it. I had never heard of it either. Here's Here's a description from Game Pass. As seen in the Sony State of Play and the Xbox E3 briefing, Riverbond is a shoot-and-slash dungeon crawler that combines a handcrafted adventure with a destructible voxel world. Adventure solo or together with friends with drop-in, drop-out couch co-op and embark on a heroic quest to help rid the evil that has befallen the land. Just looking at the pictures of it, it looks like a Minecraft ripoff and it sounds like a Lego ripoff. We'll see how it goes. Well, yeah, I, 
It could be interesting. I mean, what you could do is you could alternate back and forth. So do one random one, and then the next month do one that's either good connected game. to something you want to do, or I don't know. I mean, looking at the well, Game Pass roster, there are easily 15 things that I would just love to dive into. And there's nothing like Barbie's Horse Adventure to uh, <laughs> my daughter. Just, <laughs> there's nothing like that to uh, like really suck. So I wasn't super worried, but it's just like, oh, fucking Riverbond. But what if Riverbond ends up being the Diablo slash Minecraft slash like Lego game that you've been missing, Tom? And it just like completes your entire life gameplay story. Well, no news outlet took the time to review it, so I guess that's a possibility. <laughs> well, that's one couch co-op I probably won't be dropping in with you on. Sorry. <laughs> well, I could play with Phoenix at least, and that's something. And if anyone listening to this is on Xbox Game Pass, why don't you hit me up on Twitter or something? We can connect and try to play through this turd together. Because <laughs> one more thank you to my supporters on Patreon. If you are interested in supporting the show or the website or any of OIO's endeavors, you can back us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. Check it out at patreon.com slash OIO, and thank you so much to everyone that is already supporting the show. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now let's get into this. For the final segment, we're going to talk story. Warning, 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 warning. This is spoiler territory. If you don't want to know what happens with the plot of this game or the ending or anything like that, this is the time to either turn off Outside is Overrated or smash your phone into a million pieces. Just to add to that, if you're coming in saying, well, I played Final Fantasy VII, so there's not going to be any spoilers in this discussion, you're wrong. So if you want to keep your ears and your memory of Final Fantasy VII nice and virginal, you should stop listening to this until you play Final Fantasy VII Remake. Thank you for that. Both of you have beat this game. We talked about how much time you put into it. Brandon, you took the day that it came out off from work, and you played like 10 hours before coming up for breath. Joey, you put 26 hours into this bitch the weekend that it came out. What drew you guys in so much? For me, it really was just that instant reconnection to these characters and, and, and seeing them. They did such a phenomenal job of bringing those characters to life that I remembered and adding just so much more nuggets to dig into. And really the combat, like I was just aching to find that next battle. There, I mean, there was times like early on in the game when you're after you meet Aerith and then you're fighting these guys. I kept walking back and forth through those areas as guys kept popping up because I just wanted to try new shit with Cloud to see what I could do to these guys. Uh, and so I think that, like, they just keep unlocking pieces as it went that just drew me in. And then the thing that I think they do a really good job of with this from a story standpoint is you start get, getting pieces of Sephiroth from the beginning because the thing that this game is going to try to improve from what the original did is you're going to know right away that Sephiroth is the big bad. He's the fucker that you're fighting throughout this entire thing. Sure. You have to take down Shinra and you have to do some of these other things too, but Sephiroth is the big bad. He's the guy you have to worry about. And they do a really good job with like the flashbacks and then like sucking you in to those moments where you kind of lose control of cloud of, of, of bringing that to life early on with this first game. 
I'm not sure I put in 26 hours in the first weekend, but by the end of the first week, I know I had to have more than 30 hours in. But I just want to say, I'm a Final Fantasy Bobo. This game came out originally at the crux of my high school, like, you know, super emotion. All high schoolers are super emotional. And when you're watching this, I mean, this the stuff that happens to you in high school lives with you forever. And I was fortunate enough to play this game during that time. So what first drew me off, all right, Final Fantasy VII. Remake, it is for years and years and years and years of waiting. We finally get the remake that we've been wanting forever. Um, like you said, Tom, I took the day off Friday, it came out. I haven't taken a game, I haven't taken a Friday off from work since back in like 06 or 07 when the Burning Crusade came out, right? I mean, it has been a long time. So this is very highly anticipated for me. Um, so first off, that's what drew me in. The, the Final Fantasy VII remake, the Final Fantasy VII world is here. I'm hitting this hard. Secondly, what I wanted to see was how true to the story they were going to keep while still keeping me engaged. It's like, all right, how are you going to take four to six hours at the beginning of probably my favorite game of all time and expand this into a 50-hour world that's going to keep me engaged the entire time? How true are you going to be uh, to the story, um, but still giving us things we haven't seen before? And honestly, they did not fail. So it sounds like both of you guys came in with a lot of nostalgia, like that seemed to be the early driver, but do you think the, obviously you think the game stands on its own merit as it's, its own thing? Yeah, from the get-go they start like weaving in some of this weird stuff. So the the spirits that fly around and are kind of directing traffic at points are really weird and interesting. Let's stop right there for one second. Like that is the first new thing that they kind of bring in. Like these spirits start showing up out of the ground, like all over the place. And it's like a wave of these hooded figures just coming from nowhere. It's weird because you don't get any explanation as to what they are. It just seems like every now and again, they're getting in the way or they're pushing things together. And it doesn't become apparent early on at all exactly why that is. Like, when you first see them, you don't see them. You see Aerith just wildly thrashing in the air, and it's like, okay, crazy person, stage right. <laughs> um, but then you end up talking to her, and when she touches you, you start to see this is all happening around you and moving things in certain directions. And then as the game gets on, as the game moves forward, like, they start, like, you have to fight them in Chapter 6 or 7, and they start directly interceding in what's going on. And eventually you start to realize that they're playing a much bigger role in this some in some way, somehow. And then it doesn't really become apparent that they're playing like the focus of the story until you get into the Shinra headquarters and you're confronting the president. And then you see Sephiroth's blade come through the Shinra president's chest. And he dies. And then Barrett, who was, you know, the Shinra president had a gun to his head, was standing there. He turns to the group and is like, what's going on? And then he gets stabbed through the chest by Sephiroth. And you're like, holy fuck. Like, I figured they were going to change that and, and not kill Aerith and do something different. But then, like, they just fucking kill Barrett? Like, in the middle of nowhere? And then, like, you, there's some other story stuff that's happening. And all of a sudden, a whisper goes into barrett and he comes back to life and you're like well what the fuck are these things doing and eventually you start to realize that what these whispers are doing is they're making sure that the story happens exactly the way the original final fantasy 7 happened 
And so something crazy like that can't happen. Earlier on in the game, when the Whispers intercede, they're pushing Cloud so that he meets Aerith. Because otherwise, Sephiroth dragging him to the side would have kept him from meeting Aerith. But they distracted her long enough for him to see her. And, and so all these other different areas of the game, they're interceding where the story was starting to get off the original track. And then that's where, after you clear out everything in Shinra headquarters, the game flips and you realize that then the real battle is to take down these whispers so that you can have control over your own destiny again. And you don't have to play through the rest of the Final Fantasy VII games the same way and have the same ending. Now it's opened up and anything can happen. And I think that's sort of the biggest thing that they did with this, uh, with this game. And I thought the way that they like sort of sprinkled that in throughout and then how that all came to a head and then fighting them as the big bad at the end, along with Sephiroth, I thought was really well done. And the story excelled amazingly in how all those pieces came together and then allowed them to set up the next game so that you're not 100% sure what's going to happen now. Yeah, those spirits were crazy. And again, it's like you, you first see me like, what the hell is going on? Because nothing like that happened in the first one. And you're like, all right, how off base are we really going to get now? You know, <laughs> where is it really going to push us at this point? And you're thinking, man, you know, these things that they're coming through looking like Harry Potter Dementors. And <laughs> it's they just keep pushing the story in, uh, in different spots where I thought, like, at first, I thought that they were taking us away from certain things. And I'm just like... That just seems so odd that they would have and focus on this as early as, well, you're fighting them in that big scene in Chapter 4 where they're all kind of whipping at you and you wake up and, you know, they've taken over the Sector 7 slums. And you're just like, this is super odd. It's like, I I get they had ghosts and things like that back in the original, but this is taking things to a new extreme, like, uh, super paranormal activity. What the hell? But then again, they they tie it up really nice towards the end where, um, you know, now we're kind of breaking free through our faith, and then you see some like uh, some stuff like that might have happened even in the past a little bit, you know, with Cloud uh-huh. coming into the city, which was oh that 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 one right there tugged at my you know tugged at my emotions pretty with hard, Zach. but it was yeah yeah it was awesome just the way they brought Zach in and had him carrying Cloud into the city, and that's how Cloud ended up you know obviously being a guard, but ah oh, man I, yeah I thought just th- their storytelling was just phenomenal. Yeah. So I'm a little confused with something here. Maybe you guys can clarify. So you fight the uh, the whispers, the spirits to break destiny. Has all of this happened before? Like, is I heard from an article somewhere that Cloud, the flashbacks Cloud is seeing is from the original game. Like, are we in Groundhog's Day here? Is like, it's the crew reliving <laughs> the same experience again, or is this? I don't understand how this is working. Yes. I, I, so what I see is. What's happening is you get these glimpses, but I think you know they're they're obviously from the original. But what they're seeing is the future, like what fate is supposed to be. Like this is supposed to happen in the future, which is why you're getting these glimpses. And I think that's where they tie the spirits in because yeah. you see the holy materia bouncing down the steps. You see mm-hmm. different aspects, like you see meteor crashing to the ground. You see yeah. Red Thirteen's kid running across the beach. All this stuff that was supposed to happen in the original, you're getting glimpse of the future, which is what these spirits are, what what these fates are trying to push you towards. And I think that's really where they're tying everything together. 
Yeah, because you get into the final battle, and as you succeed through different phases against those the different harbingers of fate, basically what happens is once you defeat one, you get a glimpse. And so it shows the scene from Advent Children where Red 13, 500 years in the future, is running with his children and Midgar is like overgrown with with uh, over with overgrowth. There's another one you see a snippet Barrett seeing meteor crashing into Midgar, and so yeah, you're seeing all this stuff, and that's why you need to stop it so that this doesn't end up happening. We're not just playing the same fate over again, or we're not playing into fate. That's the only way that we can try to stop Sephiroth from succeeding, uh, or is it? Depending upon what Sephiroth says after you complete that. It's fascinating. It's really interesting. It opens up a lot of questions for the future games. And I think it does a really good job of setting that up. Having not played through it, it's a lot for me to process. Are you guys satisfied with the overall arc of the remake? Absolutely. I, again, I, they kept enough of it to make it a remake, but they changed enough of it to keep me interested and wanted to keep pushing through. And I honestly, I'm so happy with the way things turned out, which is obviously why I wouldn't play through the hard mode right now if I wasn't. If I was like, this is trash, this is garbage, they screwed everything up, I wouldn't care about the hard mode at this point. But uh, just, again, the nostalgia factor is huge and just wanting to unlock and see everything and all the different uh, quest lines. Um, I can't wait to see where they take this. I think it's going to be phenomenal. Yeah, I, I think they succeeded really well. Um, I am concerned, uh, looking forward, and we can maybe talk a little bit more, that I really hope they don't start to go like Kingdom Hearts direction level of story crazy and like all these different tiers and levels of things happening. I really hope they don't go down that line, uh, which this opens up the possibility for them to do that. Uh, I really hope they steer clear of that and just sort of enjoy making the next versions of this game sort of in that like in that mindset of now we're free to do other things. We'll have some of the same things happen, but some different things are going to happen here. And I think it does a really good job of making what they're going to be able to make next fresh, which is obviously what they wanted to set up with the way they went with the story here. Before we dive into what comes next, let's talk a little bit about elements of the story that struggled. Were there low points for you? I don't want to drag anything down because this is a game that you guys both really enjoyed. Most of my friends that are playing it are absolutely in love with it. I think I'm the only person I know that is playing it and isn't like over the moon for it. What were the challenges? Well, I think one of the main challenges were wanting to experience the next part of the story because having played through it so many times, you know what's coming up. You know wall market leads into corneo dropping you into the sewers into the destruction mm -hmm. of uh sector seven and just wanting to get to that next part without having to do some of the extra side quests the side quests were fun and opening everything up but now it's dragging the story a little bit when i want to see what happens next and i could have skipped all that and came back and played all the played all the side quests and stuff later on and really pushed the story but that's what I think made the side quest drag just a little bit, was wanting to advance the story into I know what's coming and I know what's next, and I just want to see how amazing it's going to be, and then having to slow down to find these damn cats. So that's that's probably where it didn't excel at so much. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the biggest complications that the side quests bring in is then the pacing of the overall story. 
And I know people would probably be quick to say, well, you don't have to do the side quests. But if you don't do the side quests, you don't get the scene with Tifa where you determine basically what dress she's wearing later on. And you don't get that extra lore bit with her. You don't get the extra uh, lore with Aerith and like talking to her. You miss out on weapons and other rewards. Like there are some tangible like things that you want from these side quests. Yes. Yes. And and so so y- you don't have to do them, but you still kind of have to do them. And it makes those chapters in the end feel a bit more bloated than the other chapters. And, and so I do think there are times where that stunts the pacing a bit. Uh, and, and so that's that's, I think, the spots where they if, if some of those side quests were a little bit more integrated into the story or had more of a payoff directly back into the story or with that character at some point later on, I would maybe be more okay with that because it would all interweave together a lot better, but, but they don't all do that. And so I think that is a hindrance then to the overall plot as a whole, like just experience. Sure. So what I'm hearing from us is that the only major downsides to this game are the side quests, a little bit of the pacing stuff, and I had a little bit of a problem with walking down hallways. Is that Are these really the only grievances we have with the Final Fantasy remake, something we've all been anticipating for eight or more years? Yeah, it's, 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 it, it's so amazing. Like, there were countless times, especially that first weekend, but then throughout, where I would get up to go to the bathroom, and I'd be like, God, this game is so fucking awesome. Like, I'm talking to myself as I go back to the bathroom. It's like, I can't believe they did that, like, that well. And it's just, whatever I just did, it's just like, oh, my God, like, Walmart, it's so fun. And and just so much of it, they just, you can tell that they cared so much about wanting to make this the vision that they wanted and that they figured fans would want to. And I know there's some people that aren't as happy with the changes and aren't as happy with the combat system and so on and so forth. But to me, like they just did a phenomenal job with all of this. And I know we haven't really talked about the music yet. I mean, the level that they expanded upon the music from the original game made variations of that so that every combat isn't the same theme. It's like a slightly different version of that or one of the battle themes mixed with another and and just the way that it like tones up and down in intensity when you're in a battle when you're in between battles is just amazing like that is i've never had that so well mixed the music so well mixed throughout a game and it's just phenomenal like how they did that it's 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 gotta be the best like integration of a soundtrack into a game I think of any game that's been created. I'm not a big music and game guy, so I I thought the music was awesome too, but it wasn't transformative for me. Brandon, what uh do you have any other high points for the game that you want to highlight before we talk about where the franchise goes next? Boy, I I don't think I could sing this particular game praises enough. I mean, to to Burns' point they cared so much about this game before it came out that at one point, I believe they scrapped the entire project they were working on and said, you know what? Don't like the way this is going. Uh, we're not going to play Final Fantasy 15 and piecemeal things together. You know, we're starting over. We're reskinning this stuff. We're, we're, we're going to do better because we do care. We want the fans to get everything they can out of this. We, we need this to be perfect. 
and just the direction that this entire project went. Again, I couldn't be happier with it. This is everything my, you know, 16-year-old self would have wanted back <laughs> in 1997. It's just, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. They tugged at the heartstrings at the right places. They made you care about things that you probably shouldn't care about. And just every step through this was just, just phenomenal. And, and I can't wait to finish the rest of the chapters on hard mode. I, I can't wait to get back into it. That's awesome. And I mean, this had to be so crazy expensive for Square to produce. They've been working on it so long. I hope that it is just crushing it financially and that we get to see future installments. So where do well, they go next? Is the next game Final Fantasy VII Remake 2? Like, I don't know how the naming convention is going to work from here on out. I'm pretty sure. So financially, they sold 3.5 million copies in the first three days, uh, which is quite Solid. I think like the record is like five million copies that GTA five sold in their first three days. So it's like doing extremely well, especially given the fact that like stores are closed right now. You can only order stuff online. Like it's not easy to buy things right now per se. Not as easy as it used to be. And so I think that's amazing. Two, what like is coming next, it's not gonna be remake part two. It's going to be Final Fantasy VII colon and then some descriptor of what the next portion's about. So it's like Final Fantasy VII colon the search for Genova or, or you know, whatever. I'm not 100% sure. They're going to drop the remake part of it because now, since they've gotten the shackles of having to play out everything the way it used to be, now it can be its own game. It's its own separate timeline from the original Final Fantasy VII. And so it'll be interesting to see what they keep from the original and what they change. What new story elements? Do we get new playable characters now? Like, is it possible we don't meet some of the old playable characters until later? Like, It's so interesting as to how it's wide open now. They can kind of do whatever they want. The shackles are removed from the development team and they can creatively kind of come up with whatever they want. I, I agree with that 100%. You know, at the end, you basically destroy these fates, and now you're free to make your own destiny. You know, uh, we're obviously going to follow the, the, the main storyline to a point. Um, going forward outside of Midgar, we'll see the same towns because it's still the same world. We'll see the same characters, I'm sure. Maybe we'll be introduced to some new playable characters. Uh, maybe Aerith doesn't die. You know, maybe there are other weapons or creatures that fight for the planet that you're going to run into now that you've changed a specific point in destiny. I really feel like they open themselves up to even more story arcs. Uh, they've given themselves a, a ton of leeway to change the story for a bit. They, and, and quite frankly, I'm okay with that. I got the remake I wanted. I got to see the character development I wanted. I got to see all the characters reskinned with new voices and, and uh, you know, different character plots that I'm okay if we don't go to the Chocobo farm next. I'm okay if we don't meet Sid because, you know, the, you know, we have to escape Shinra and fly, you know, the, the tiny Bronco someplace. I'm okay with that. <laughs> if we meet any of these characters in different parts or different uh, plot lines, I'm okay. If, you know, we get to Wu Tai and they hate everybody instead of being this little destination spot, you know, uh, that they ended up being in final fantasy seven. I'm okay with the change moving forward now because of what we've already seen. And I, I hope I, again, I hope they do great things. I hope we get five more installments of this. <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's just phenomenal. How far would be too far for them to go? Like Aerith has to die, right? Like no, don't know. No, anymore. Now that now that the destiny is 
is altered, like that doesn't have to happen. Anything could happen. Like for all we know, so the ending of the game makes it pretty ambiguous that Zach maybe didn't die bringing Cloud back. So if that's the case, like Cloud could get killed and then Zach becomes the lead character at some point and Zach and Aerith's love interest like rekindles like it like literally anything could happen which is exciting but given that Tetsuya Nomura and the person I can't remember Nojima who is one of the head writers of this game also were both head writers of Kingdom Hearts, it scares the living shit out of me because <laughs> I don't want them to go batshit fucking insane and I can't decipher what's happening anymore with this either. So I am a little scared as to how that all works and how that all comes together. It'll be interesting. It'll be yes. really interesting to see. I don't think they kill Cloud. I think Aerith still dies. Hot take, this- Tom. Hot take. <laughs> <laughs> I could see them flipping the script and killing, like, Tifa or something, maybe. I don't know. It, it could be anything. Yeah, it'll be pretty pretty interesting. So, as I was playing, I suggested every year for Halloween, we host a Halloween party, and a Phoenix gets really into us doing, like, a family costume. And I'm like, well, this year, we could do Final Fantasy. We could do Final Fantasy, Annie. And she, like, she said, well, I thought of that, but then I thought, you don't want me to be Aerith. I'm like, what's wrong with Aerith? <laughs> also you're right but what's wrong with Aerith so who would you be then Red 13 go as Red 13 yes perfect <laughs> uh, if, like I said before uh, the other day if uh, if Pat is back in Minnesota for Halloween he needs to be rude because he looks a lot like rude from the oh, Turks Pitbull? <laughs> yeah, every time I saw Rude, I'm like, holy crap, they brought Pitbull into the game. <laughs> He's everywhere. <laughs> uh, I thought he was going to show up on the Mountain Dew can or something. <laughs> uh, take for in the future, uh, next parts of Final Fantasy, you get to play as the Turks in one of them. So you'll get to play as ooh. Rude, you'll get to play as Reno, um, and that would be fun. Like, super fast guy running around, or the big beat stick. I don't know. I think that would be fun. That would be an interesting direction. Well, any other closing thoughts you guys have on Final Fantasy VII Remake? No. I, if you haven't played it, pick it up and play it. Uh, this game could... I, it's a standalone game. Even if you haven't played the first one, you're not missing out on anything if you're playing this one for the very first time without playing Final Fantasy VII. It's it's gorgeous. It's a lot of fun. The gameplay is amazing. Um, I give it a 10 out of 10. It, it Final Fantasy VII was probably my favorite game of all time. This remake probably tops it. That's awesome. I'm not as in love with it as you guys are, but the one thing that I will note as we close, I am so excited that so many people that love Final Fantasy VII are loving this remake. Like, I love that it is everything that you guys hoped it would be. I don't know what I was expecting. Uh, I enjoy the game, but I am so glad that it filled that like passionate hole for you guys. You're all about filling our passionate holes, Tom. <laughs> Especially you, Bernsey. Next, Joey and I will be back to talk about video game music. Along with a new friend of the show, we're bringing Billy in for an episode all about video game music. Thank you so much for listening to Outside is Overrated. Please drop a review for us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. 
Again, if you want to follow us on social, it's at ThompsonLogicOIO on Twitter and Instagram or at HobbyBoxBurns, Facebook.com slash Outside is Overrated. We'll talk to you next month. Stay inside, kids. One of them was uh, Anima from Final Fantasy X. Okay. Anima? <laughs> oh, yeah. Anima. <laughs> it cleaned out afterwards. <laughs> it cleans everyone out. <laughs> don't don't say so. Don't say so. <laughs> or um. So the thing I was thinking about now. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! <laughs>